0: Greetings ladies and metal and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called The Grand Royal Class Cruises, written by FarmWitch4275. I look up from my desk, surprised at the sight of a human, clad like some kind of heavily armoured monk, standing in my office. He stood there with a noticeable smile, and looking down at me, it was unusual to have a human around the station, unless there was a problem. Humans with the Federation's problem solvers. So his mere presence was a matter of concern. Not just for me, but for the entire station. Hello. I was not aware of a human delegation today. Is there an issue? I asked, gesturing for him to sit in the chair opposite my desk. Good morning, sir. Uh, there is no issue. I'm here to tell you about your welcoming gift for joining the Federation. Uh, it's finally ready. He said as he sat down. Gift? uh, I was not aware of that kind of tradition. I tilted my stubby head to the side in confusion. No new members are aware it exists. Some never will. It isn't a gift per se for joining the Federation. It's more of a a thank you kind of thing for fulfilling your obligations. Yours is finally ready for you to collect. He simply sat down calmly, smiling at me all the while. Well, uh, um, what exactly is it? I asked, curiosity getting the better of me. Two ships, custom-built from our tank and your ship designs, specially made for you. One ship will serve in the Federation Corps fleet, and the other will be added as a ship in your own navy. He handed me a datapad, and I looked at Hover. I see. Well, uh, we could always use more ships. Well, what are these ships like, exactly? I asked, with an eye stalk slightly tilted to the left. You'll see. We love giving gifts and things, sir. The surprise and shock makes it worth it. It is ready for collection. As a consequence, here, he handed me a very ornate letter with a golden wax seal. I took it, trying to be careful not to get any mucus on it. Oh, my. With this, you'll have temporary access to the human home star system. It'll detail procedures and operations for the exchange. Make sure you're on your best behavior, he said with a smile that tried to calm me down. I was not calm. This meant that we were one of the very select few that had ever seen humanity's home star system. Seventy-one different species in the Federation, only seven had ever seen it. And one of them came uninvited. They weren't around anymore. Oh, oh my, 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 my goodness! He just chuckled in a strange way that humans do. <laughs> uh, Follow the procedures and protocol outlined in the letter. Bring a delegation ship, plus a transport ship, a skeleton crew to just get the ships out of dock, and a minimum of 50 men for both ships. I I understand. Uh, uh, Have a nice day, I said, the shock of the situation finally getting to me. Same to you, friend. He said with a smile. He gave me a bow and left calmly. I unsealed the envelope and read the letter. Dear esteemed colleague, congratulations. The letter is to inform you that your new Federation-sponsored warship pair is available for collection. These warships are a gift to you to signify that you have successfully completed all obligations set for you by the Federation and are built as a thank you for your service. These warships are custom-made of the highest quality materials, of the highest quality craftsmanship, with a technology that far exceeds your own. Please bring a minimum complement of 100 starship crew to allow you to take control this is considered a skeleton or minimum operations crew. You can sort out an actual crew roster yourself when they are in full operation. Please find enclosed a data chart containing a series of one-time only single-use access codes. You will be permitted two ships, one troop transport to operate the ships, along with a delegation or diplomatic ship, no larger than a battleship class for this exchange. If we see more than two ships or a ship of a larger class than specified, we will open fire. With sincere regards, Revered Father Julius Mortis, Philly Vacal, Calesto Driveyards. Philly Vacal? What the hell is Philly Vacal? Well, I suppose if we were invited, we might must oblige. I must tell the Emperor immediately. The situation was somewhat asture. In our haste to arrive, we had no time to prepare. The Emperor seemed somewhat unfazed as he sat in my desk seat at the head of the bridge. Sparks of stardust and space debris flashing past us as it disintegrated against the warp shield. We would be there any minute. I was nervous. Damned nervous. So much so that there was more mucus from my tentacles than usual. The Emperor, as per always, was dry as a desert sands. Two minutes to contact, the ship's pilot said, calling the ship to attention. Good. We are almost there. Nervous, Kim Chach. The Emperor looked at me, smiling at my secretions. "Mark gave me away? I chuckled half-heartedly, shuffling with discomfort. Make sure that we activate the cleaning apparatus before we disembark. It is all I am saying. This is quite the occasion. He reached down and grabbed his beverage, a drink called tea that we have become somewhat addicted to. Bubble collapse in five, four, three, two... One, the pilot announced, as we saw particles of dust around us begin to slow. The solar system suddenly came into view. Everyone in the ship either did or, or barely held off the urge to spew defensive ink everywhere, as we saw the massive fortress that was Sol. We appeared outside of Pluto, which had been turned into a gigantic static defense turret. A legion of hundreds of warships of every possible size and class immediately turned their attention towards us. I barely managed not to shit myself at the sight of the sheer quantity of cannons mounted on those ridiculous hulks of metal. Human warships had a different kind of elegance to them. Unlike most ships in the galaxy, human warships lacked in style and contours, making it up in size, armor, and sheer amount of weaponry. Even if they didn't have technological superiority, the sheer quantity by itself would make a fighting them nothing short of suicidal. We jumped out of our exoskeletons a bit at the sound of the hail. This is Soul Defense Fleet Epsilon-8. Identify yourself immediately. I am Emperor juis of the Serangathi Imperium. We have an invitation to be here. My Emperor, ever the Stoic Master, barely flinched. Please hold for verification. We have you on schedule. Our instruments went crazy at the action of six dozen warships scanning us at once, all of us collectively trying not to ink ourselves. Verified. Proceed, Vector 330 by 488. Callisto docks Four 47. C- copy that. The pilot had to stop himself and clear his throat to stop the squeaky voice. <coughs> uh, copy that. Uh, we're in motion. I heard a subtle laugh over the comm as the radio crackled out. Human ships dispersed with two of the larger cruisers forming up with us. It took us about an hour in sublight speeds to get there. It was truly an incredible sight to see. Thousands, tens of thousands of ships, all human design, all operating in near-perfect concert as they drifted in space around the star system. A few smaller craft, mining vessels, and cargo ships decided to come closer to us to figure out what we are. A few humans could be seen through the windows, and we waved at them, getting a wave back in response. We arrived at Callisto, a barren, icy rock saturated in the human refining industry. It was here that I first glanced at them, the two ships, our ships sitting in a dockyard, one in clear Federation colors and the other in ours, a stark contrast to human warships. I looked at some other ships while I could see them. Danthraki, Kasani, Olivarchus, Perrindai, all of them just sitting there. What in the abyss are they doing here? Two ships, a pair for every species in the galaxy. Even the bioships of the Telaxu Hive. How do they get these? The entire crew of both ships shared a concerned glance as we slowly moved into place, in the only empty spot available. A soft thunk signaled we were docking to the station. The Emperor stood up, and we all instantly snapped out of our stupor to full attention. Right, let's go then. By the abyss, the system uh, fascinating, he said as he headed towards the airlock. The security team that greeted us was minimal. One of the human ambassadors I knew well was here. The most striking thing I saw, however, was the group of seven monks standing nearby, wearing dark purple robes, gilded with gold trimming. Each one had a face mask of an intricate and hand-made design connected to a very high-quality pressure system. Under the robes I could clearly see heavy augmentation and armor plating. Each one carried with him a plasma spear in his right hand, a pistol in his left holster and a rifle of some kind on his back. We tried to ignore the sight and greeted my fellow ambassador with the Emperor's blessing Andrew, my friend, so good to see you. I held my tentacle out to him. He grabbed it gently with a smile as we shook hands. Indeed, an incredible day, indeed. uh, I wish you told us that you were coming. We would have set out a red carpet or something. Had no idea the Emperor himself was coming. Andrew bowed to our Emperor in greeting. The Emperor smiled. When given an opportunity to see the home system of the Federation's founders, "'Do you think that we would miss this?' "'Indeed. "'So you have probably noticed on your approach "'what exactly sits in these dockyards. "'I assume you are curious,' he said with a very cheeky smile. "'Indeed we are. "'How did you get those ships? "'Even the Talaxu Hive Bioship,' I said absent mindedly. "'We made them, well, they did,' Andrew said, "'gesturing to the seven monks nearby. "'Wait, what? "'These are called Grand Royal Class Cruisers.' Battlecruiser-class, modular design, template with a full suite of custom weapons, high-grade materials and reactors. Identical, two of a kind, save for the paint job. Come, you need to see it to believe it. Let's show you your first fleet ship, Andrew said with a heady smile as we all filtered out into the viewing ports towards the ship. A layer of our excess mucus followed us, with tiny plate-sized robots behind us cleaning up the mess as a hundred of us squidged off towards the docks. We all gathered round the viewing windows, crowding around the dock as we looked at our new ships. I had a ship engineer near me. He had his face fully pressed into the glass. His bulbous eye stalks firmly squished against the plexiglass. He let out a loud, sensual squeal before collapsing in a wobbly heap on the floor. A babbling mess. Most other engineers or navigators likewise did the same. It was a collective orgasm of sorts, both myself and the Emperor. Along with a few officers, stood back at the sight and profusely apologized at embarrassing display. The humans simply smiled at us, nodding knowingly as if their own engineers suffered the same fate. Andrew held his hand up at us and offered the officers the first look at the interior. We walked in and immediately one of our officers noticed something. The ship was uh, magnificent, beautiful, regal, divine. The air itself held the freshest starship air I could ever breathe, as if I were in my own home on my homeworld. The air had a faint scent of some kind of plant native to the human homeworld that my data-slave described as pine conifer, and it calmed and softened as we breathed it in. The floor we squished upon was soft, soft like the branches of our homeworld, and the mucus we left behind us immediately vanished, soaking up into the floor without a trace leaving it polished and immaculate. Every single surface, from the guardrails to seating tiles, is covered in an engraved pattern, polished to a near mirror shine, and sterilized to an absolute state of cleanliness. Part of the ships are made of a certain wood type that is used to make luxury furniture. It is varnished and cleansed to perfect shine. The ship fit perfectly into our biology and customs. Crew quarters full of large-sized aquariums that could keep us in comfort even under duress. Various deck displays containing our favorite pastimes and board games. The main bridge had control stations fitted to make us as comfortable as possible. deck and solid screen displays for all the ship functions. The mess hall was already fully stocked, built more like a restaurant than a starship's mess hall. Every surface is sterile, clean. Tables made of our homeworld trees. Chairs made of luxury metal covered in a thick cushion of Arcanthian silk. Again, from our homeworld. The engineering officers who followed us were bubbling, wobbling uncontrollably the more they looked at the ship. Wait a minute, wait, something is off here, the Empress said, taking a few close looks at the panel access point. He opened it, and the sight of the gears and pistons inside making an engineer squeal in delight. "Mm, This is, uh, this is, he looked at Andrew, is this entire ship? Handcrafted? Andrew laughed. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Every part, piece, and component is fully handcrafted, from absolute scratch out of the best available materials, specifically mined, refined, and processed by the ship's makers. Every single engine turbine blade is precision made and custom crafted in its own custom cast. Every pipe is precision crafted. Every rating is hand welded. Every single piece of the ship. From floor tiles to plasma cannons is all made by the master hands of our master craftsmen. The monks came into view from behind. And all of it is custom made by only seven men, built over a two-year period. Plasma cells fully charged, reactor fully fueled, canteen fully stocked. She's ready to go at your order, the tallest of the monks said handing me a velvet bag with the key cards and access codes. One ship, this ship, is meant for operation in the Federation Defense fleet. You will crew it with a full complement of your best operators, and they will serve the greater whole in the forced recon response fleet. The other ship, in your colors, will be added to your personal navy and serve in whatever capacity you wish. We only wish for you to follow standard operation protocols when dealing with any issues or disputes. Don't use this ship to engage in personal disputes or vendettas. She has fifty times the reactor power and combat strength of a dreadnought, Andrew said calmly. So please use the power wisely. This finally sent our officers over the edge, and they collectively arrived, in yet another face palmingly embarrassing display. My emperor turned a shade of purple. By the abyss, he said, then joined the embarrassing display. But, 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 but. The other ships, the Tlaxu ships, the, the, the Darthraki yeah I asked and faltered through the access codes I was given. All to be collected, waiting to be united with their masters. When they can be proven worthy of their power, you have more than proven your capabilities. More than proven that you can be trusted. We look forward to working with you, Andrew said with a smile, holding out a hand for me to shake. I shook with more enthusiasm I knew than I could muster and stumbled over my emperor's babbling form as I headed up to the bridge, dragging a pilot with me. This will be awesome. End of story. Flowers of the Forest. Written by Coyote Havoc. Humans are very good at making a point. I can either understate or overstate this observation. I was there on Earth when they demonstrated their absolute mastery of the skill. I have never forgotten that day, nor do I think I ever will. At the very least, I would prefer not to forget. I was much younger then, a proud commander of the Aura fleet. I had sharpened my beak at Tavask and Fakken against the Graf. My talents were honed on my jet station, where we had snatched victory from the grasp in the face of overwhelming firepower. Our war had raged for over twenty solar rotations, and that is when the Graf and the Ara made their most atrocious mistake. Our war spilled over our respective borders into human space, a world they had recently colonized. They had maimed, respite. We only realized the damage we had done when the human delegation was sent to our respective core worlds, and an invitation was extended to both combatants to meet at peace talks on Earth. To be quite frank. Neither the Aura or the Krapth desired peace, but we humored the Hume in order to wash away the incident our fighting had caused. We would placate them and assure them that it would never happen again, and then go about our merry way trying to annihilate each other. We would quickly see how foolish we had been to believe that that was a possibility. Both delegations were welcomed with a typical pomp and circumstance allotted for any attempts from a foreign nation to settle a dispute. Both belligerents seated apart with the peaceful delegation strategically placed between them at all times. Weapons were forbidden for obvious reasons, but what struck us in the Grapp's delegation as odd was the location. Instead of a major city such as New York or the center of government such as Berlin, they had decided on a population center less than 50,000 named Wacom. If that wasn't enough of a deviation, They also announced that all parties should be expected to be ready before the local star had even broke the horizon at 0700 local time. We were there to humour the humans, so we took it in stride. After all, many species had tried and failed. What could the humans do the others had not already tried? As requested, everyone was awake and dressed in their ceremonial best before dawn, and both us and the Grampth were surprised to find a human military detachment waiting for us armed with ancient gas and piston-operated rifles. A Grapp's general was the first to raise a complaint, but the human delegation assured us that the weapons were ceremonial and showed us that they were loaded with blanks. They then bid us to walk with them in the foggy pre-dawn air, so that they can hear both sides of our war and what it was over. Assured that we wouldn't have far to walk, we ventured out onto the streets of a small town and began to discuss the reason for the war still thinking to ourselves that we were humoring the humans. The journey and discussion ended at a stone gate that was lined with trees barely visible in the darkness and fog, but we could hear human music coming from within. Honored guests, our human hosts began. Welcome to the opening ceremony of the Wagon Peace Talks. The bark was simple yet immaculate, even in the mists and shadows. The farther we ventured down the lane, past the gate, the closer and clearer the haunting music became. The music was called a ballad, and it was sad and sweet. The first verse was lost in the dew and gloom, but I remember hearing the last part of the refrain clearly. Let the band play the last post and chorus. Let the pipes play and the flowers in the forest. I can remember looking over at the human delegation, hoping for an answer, and seeing the three eyes of graft also blinking in confusion. Did you leave a wife or sweetheart behind? In some faithful heart, if your memory enshrined. Although you died in 1916, in some faithful heart are you forever 19. Or are you a stranger without even a name, enclosed in forever behind a glass frame? In an old photograph, torn? battered and stained, and faded to yellow in a brown leather frame. As the refrain repeated it slowly dawned upon Aura and Grumpf alike, the humans were openly weeping, not even trying to hold back their tears in a show of stoicism, a crass display to be certain, but one that no one dared to call out. It became all too clear as their star rose over the horizon and lit our understanding of what they were showing us. The sun now it shines on these green fields of France. There's a warm summer breeze that makes the red poppies dance. And look how the sun shines from under the clouds. There's no gas, no barbed wires, no guns firing now. In the new light of the day, we realized where we were. A small, intricate stone arch stood watch over the hundreds of gravestones. But here in the graveyard is still no man's land. The countless white crosses stand mute in the sand. Two man's blind indifference to his fellow man, and a whole generation that were butchered and damned. This was no opening ceremony. Did they beat the drums slowly? Did they play the fife lowly? Did they play the death march as the lower drew down? It was a warning and a promise. Humanity had almost destroyed themselves in conflicts as the music had made plain. How much havoc would they wreak on us? Did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers in the forest? We had involved humanity in our petty conflict, and they were going to end it one way or another. As if to hammer in the point, the last verse was sung, How young Willie McBride, I can't help but wonder why. Do those that lie here know why did they die? And did they believe when they answered the cause? Did they really believe that this war would end wars. Well, the sorrow, suffering, the glory, the pain, the killing, the dying were all done in vain. Horror hit both the grasp and the aura simultaneously. For young Willie McBride, it all happened again, and again, and again, and again, and again. He had been invited into a tragedy of a species who knew death and despair on a deep and personal level. Who had strived to be better and always slipped back into their atrocities. We would learn from their mistakes or suffer the fate alongside them. After the Treaty of Wagon was signed, I decided to look into a war that was mentioned in that heart wrenching song. 8.5 million of their soldiers and 6 million of their civilians had died by the time peace was finally established. On the 11th day of the 11th month in their year, 1918, 20 years, 9 months and 21 days, Their second world war began the same amount of time the Ara and Graf had been at war. End of story. Story number two. Wise, wise humans written by magic rectangle. Hold my beer, my new friend Todd was the first human I ever met He was about two meters tall, with a brownish skin, two arms, two legs, one head. Seemed perfectly ordinary, intelligent life-form. Todd and I worked construction on SETI Colony, our people's first large-scale joint venture with the humans. We worked all kinds of odd jobs, really. Neither of us had advanced training in any particular field, so we just shuffled around to do whatever needed an extra set of tentacles. We got into the habit of hanging out after work since neither of us had any family on world. Todd was always fun to talk to, and got even more fun after he had a few beers in him. Unfortunately, this biocompatibility scanner told me that drink wasn't suitable for ingestion, so I stuck to apple juice, a tasty beverage from the human homeworld. That night wasn't much different from any other, who we were wandering the construction site for the new nesting area. As you probably know, no nesting area is complete without a breeding pit. That day, we had finished digging out the massive hole, but it hadn't yet been filled with nutrient fluid. In fact, it hadn't even been sealed with a layer of polymer. It was just an empty half-circle carved from solid rock. Are you thinking what I'm thinking, buddy? Todd had a gleam in his eye as he surveyed the empty pit. Almost certainly not. Ah, skateboard! I wasn't sure what I was supposed to understand from that word, but Todd did not elaborate, instead, pouncing on a nearby pile of scrap. He wielded his pocket welder in one hand and his beer in the other as he constructed some sort of rudimentary transportation device. When his work was done, he turned back to show me the fruits of his labor. It was little more than two sets of wheels attached to a piece of sheet metal, but he looked at it with a childlike glee. Hold my beer! It was a week and a half later that I came by to pick Todd up from the medical unit. I had lied and said that his injuries were incurred during the course of our duties. There was some doubt from the shift supervisor, given the timing, but we were often the last to leave the job site due to being responsible for some of the daily clean-up. He couldn't prove the injury wasn't job-related, so he'd just have to eat it. Honestly, I don't know what you were thinking, Todd. My mind wandered back to the events of that night. After handing off his beverage, Todd had put on one foot on the skateboard and simply dropped over the side of the breeding pit. I had no idea what he thought would happen, but what transpired was exactly what any thinking being ought to have expected. For perhaps a second, Todd's feet remained on the board, but the surface of the pit was uneven, not having yet been polymer sealed. The vibrations as the board rolled faster and faster across the rough surface eventually kicked out from under him. He tumbled end over end all the way to the bottom of the pent. Thank the Omni Queen for the nanite healing tanks, not even one century ago, human medical science would have been unable to restore Todd to full function. A few months, maybe. A terraforming process on SETI Colony had already progressed to the point of breathable atmosphere, but it was vital to keep as close eye on every aspect of the new biosphere, hence the monitoring station. Station 27 was at the top of a rather large cliff, a convenient location from which to both launch and monitor weather balloons, as well as run a variety of other equipment neither of us understood. It was an evening not unlike any other. Todd and I had finished our work and we sat near the edge of the cliff, looking out across the barren landscape as we sipped our beverages and discussed heady topics. So, human isn't actually your species name? Uh, technically no. Uh, Basically, as soon as our ancestors started walking upright, they are humans. There's a whole bunch of different species under that umbrella. Uh, You know, I'm not a scientist, but I think it's called a genus? Wait, I needed a second to process this. Are there other intelligent species on your planet? Uh, Oh no, uh, they're all gone. I think we killed or screwed them all out of existence. Again, not a scientist. But there was something about that in the school, I'm sure. Okay, so if your species isn't human, then what is it? Homo oh, sapiens sapiens. I blinked at my translator app. You called yourselves the Wise Wise Humans? Huh? I don't know. It's Latin, I think. Uh, is that what it means? What the fick? Todd seemed to be done with the conversation. His eye had been drawn to a pile of scrap that should have been a weather balloon, but it had been damaged in transport. Now, it was little more than some lightweight composite alloys with large sheets of strong, thin fabric. Not you thinking what I'm thinking, buddy. Almost oh, most certainly not. a oh, hang glider! Tom unclipped his pocket welder from his belt. Wise, wise humans. <laughs> Hold my beer! End of story. What Humans Call Overkill, written by Fox Corp. Human methods have always been particularly noteworthy for being overkill. Admiral Talon flipped through several pictures on a large projected screen behind him. The Battle of Yavon V. Humans called it a light bombardment. The picture behind him depicted five battlecruisers in orbit, all simultaneously firing orbital artillery towards the terrorist stronghold known as Keep-2. Over two megadons worth of ordnance were dropped on 50-square-mile area. When questioned about the severity of their methods, human ambassadors frowned in confusion and stated, that's just the nature of orbital fire support. A screenshot of a human news website flashed behind the admiral. The bombardment was so trivial that it was little more than a footnote under a footnote titled Human Volunteers Aid in Peacekeeping Operation. For those who were not alive a hundred years ago, the keepers of the sacred word, as they called themselves, were the most dangerous terrorists are the galaxy had seen in over half a century. To the humans, they were little more than a fly to be swatted. One of the most infamous pictures of all time was next to be presented on a human soldier onlooking the ruins of an entire city of New Calante. A smaller martyr frigates lingered over the city's smouldering corpse, while blasting auto fire at anything that dared to peek its head out of the rubble. Despite all of this destruction, the soldier appeared to be entirely relaxed. Her rifle swung over her shoulders, and she rested lazily against a tree. It is reported that the slowed human soldier had been part of the first wave of drop troopers to make landfall around New Galante. According to both human and independent reports, the soldier managed to kill at least 57 enemy combatants single-handedly before being evacuated from the surface. Shortly after this photo was taken, the entire city of New Calanti, and everything within a 200-mile radius of it, was turned into glass by nuclear warheads. A picture of a human lawyer in court appeared on the screen. The Galactic Council tried to try the humans for war crimes. The human lawyer pointed out two things that were enough to get the trial dismissed immediately. One, the Galactic Council themselves called upon humanity to deal with the Calantine issues. And second, several deadly viruses were released from the new Calantine Biological Research Facility in an attempt to drive off human forces. The lawyer put it best, arguing that humanity was faced with the prospect of losing a city or losing an entire planet. We chose to destroy the city before it could destroy itself. Admiral Talon took a long drink of water before continuing. I would like to remind all of you that humans glass New Calante as a concession. Humans originally claimed that they planned on glassing the entire continent and quarantining every system in a 15 light-year radius, to prevent the spread of whatever diseases the Calantians had cooked up. Not even that plan was considered overkill to human command. It was at this moment the crowd began to rustle. One young officer even raised her hand to interject. After a quick nod of appreciation from Admiral Talon, the officer began If 15 light-year quarantine wasn't (coughs) considered overkill, um... the officer audibly gulped and faltered slightly. What was? Admiral Talon let out a chuckle as he changed the slide behind him. (laughs) If only we knew. Once more, the room fell into disarrayed whispers of disbelief. The Admiral looked around the room whilst all chuckling. <laughs> a quarantine of a hundred light years was proposed as an extreme but reasonable course of action. Instead of mutterings, the room fell into a stunned silence, sensing that he'd recaptured their attention fully. The Admiral continued This exchange served as a warning to the galaxy at large that humanity would see taking ludicrous courses of action as perfectly sane and reasonable. Because of this, we ramped up our surveillance on the human project sustainability in the following years, decades, uh, and as of now, centuries. What we have revealed is certainly insane, but also incredibly revealing. The picture changed rapidly and varied wildly in scope and scale. Photographs of diplomats, engineering projects, battlefields, corporation logos, government insignia, backroom deals, the whole nine yards. What you are about to be informed of is highly classified. Anyone leaking it will face court-martial and very possibly execution. But it is critical that you see this information just to see the nature of the beast and his humanity. Once more pictures swapped randomly until eventually a video began to play. The dim lights in the gargantuan meeting hall darkened completely. What was being displayed on screen was nothing short of monumental. Subtitles displayed... A large grouping of human military assets is seen amassed near an anomalously large hypergate. The camera zooms and pans for a better view. The number of visible human warships is 11,127. Gaia Officer 1. You ever see a battle group that large? Gaia Officer 2. In the history book, the hypergate begins to activate. Gaia Officer 1. Holy shit, you seeing that? The star the Hypergate orbits begins to darken as its energy is drained. The camera begins to zoom into the center of the Hypergate. Gaia Officer 2. Zoom the camera more in on that. Uh, a that copy, right? Gaia Officer 1. I've already run the diagnostic twice. What we are seeing is real. The gate is connected to a galaxy. Analysis confirms that it is a great band galaxy. Gaia Officer 2. Get Overlord on the line now. The situation's changed. End. Of video. Admiral Talon didn't delay and elaborating. Humanity has always been alien in action, belief and capability, but now it is known that they are truly alien in origin. Further intelligence gather reveals that humanity is an intergalactic force of nature. They exert total control of at least 27 galaxies. They are present in at least 1,722 galaxies, in some form. Some estimates place them at over 10,000 galaxies under their influence. Picture after picture of galaxy, megastructure, superfleet, megacorporation, politician, and scientist flash on the screen. There was so much information that several officers in the crowd were growing lightheaded. What we are dealing with is a Type 3 civilization, a hundredfold. To them, a million stars is little more than a drop in the bucket. A hundred light-year quarantine isn't even an inconvenience. It's just business as usual. The next slide that came on made everyone in the room, the Admiral included, wince. It was a map of the aptly named Great Rift of Althor. Just ten years ago the Great Rift opened, it swallowed with it an entire star cluster. It took the combined efforts of 157 species, humans included to stop the lethal radiation from sweeping across an entire grouping of 15,000 stars. The next slide sent the room into a state of pure uproar. Admiral Talon had to wait an entire minute before his calls to order were even registered by his officers' panicked minds. Silence! The room fell into quiet terror at the sight before them. You are looking at what the humans consider overkill. This is the last picture received from Althor itself before the rift consumed it. A hypergate channel from the human space to Althor. The officers lost all professionalism and began to roar in outrage at once. Why would the humans do this? We considered them allies. We are doomed. God, help us all. How can it be possible? The uproar was quenched instantly upon the arrival of the next image. A horribly disfigured being obviously screaming in unimaginable pain, was plastered on the projected screen. Within the Earth War Sector was a plague. All it took was one carrier of the disease to decimate an entire planet. The Council monitored the situation for months. In the span of that last ten days preceding the rift's opening, 273 planets went entirely dark. The humans saw the problem, and even they feared it. We begged them for help. And that was their response. On the display was a quasar, an active supermassive black hole with the gargantuan constructs channeling its energy into a beam of pure annihilation. The human hyperweapon is the most destructive device the universe has ever seen. They've harnessed the power of the quasar, focused it further, and used it in times where overkill is truly necessary. More pictures and information of the disease appeared on screen. Humans call it the Scourge. A disease they've unfortunately encountered in galaxies other than our own on several occasions. I say with great certainty that it's the only thing I've ever known to make human Admiral Queasy with a 100% certainty. Admiral Tannen surveyed the room for a good long while before concluding his brief. I'm sure all of you are now wondering what to do with this information. Unfortunately, I can only say that this information is purely useless to all of us. We exist at humanity's whims and could be eradicated just as easily. My final wisdom to all of you is this. Humans have proven time and time again to be nothing if not harmful. They show no signs of undue aggression, form treaties, broker peace. They check all the boxes of a civilized species. What I'm telling you is under no circumstances to go against the grain with humanity. They know best, and have enough firepower to make us see, or blind us with it, should they see fit. Standard practice to them is apocalypse to us. Overkill to them is annihilation to the whole universe. What I'm telling you is don't bring a cruiser to a quasar fight. In short, don't piss the humans off. End of story. Intelligence Report, Human, uh, Video Games, written by Adjutant Stormy. Sangron had been ordered, read, at gunpoint, to produce another report on human cultural strategic aptitudes. Command was not yet satisfied, so if his, this enclosed, report was not to Command's liking, his next mission may be the one he is not meant to return from. Sangron had been doing a species equivalent of sweating, panting. As they did not possess dermal sweat cooling. He was on Terran hour nineteen of reviewing these uh, video games, a tradition of computer simulations dating back to their second millennium of their calendar. Defeats of manipulation, strategy, and pure unmitigated, uncensored slaughter had his entire physiology in panic. Tensagron took a few moments to step away from his computer, making a cup of what Terrans would call tea a melange of herbs steeped with very hot water. In his case, a calming mix of herbs from his homeworld, designed for patience and reduced heart rate, focus. He needed focus. Unlike his previous reports, this one would be filmed for judgment by command to see if Segron had unduly exaggerated his findings. Uh, for my report, I will divide these Terran video games into four categories. From least concerning to most, he took a soothing sip from his tea and steeled himself alongside a fortified bomb. He looked back at the camera. The first category will be with uh, the ARPG, or action role-playing games. Your typical ARPG has a player, in this case a Terran, face off against regularly insurmountable odds as they control a single warrior against hundreds of times their number in enemies. The character will inevitably fall yes, but even from a weakened initial state, they will acquire additional physical skill in the attempt, as well as the rewards for their perseverance. This is not unlike our recruitment on Zaphyr Prime, for our green-blooded. Survive your training, you graduate to knife and pistol, Survive your first deployment, and you've earned a rifle and armor. Be granted veterancy, you may have your own command vehicle. But this is not a military sport. this is a simulation for entertainment. These humans accidentally know our promotion system, ergo, how to use it against us. Taking a moment to have some more tea, Tensegron returned to his video. These players do not at all suffer again and again for their promotion. The Darren video games often have what they called hacks and cheat codes, whereby unblooded players may skip the line of experience and acquire the arms of greater compatriot. Worse yet, these promotions are commonly purchased with currency. Read pay to win. Yet, when competitive comparisons can be made, the most veterans may be beaten every challenge on their own merits, a dozen times over. There are ARPGs of sword and shield combat, There are those of aerial dogfights. There are those of pure magical fantasy. The masters of the genre have reflexes to rival our best interceptor pilots. Cue footage. A 20-minute montage of dodge rolling in Dark Souls. Next is the genre that I will acknowledge is the turn-based tactical RPG. These involve the players commanding a squad of individuals of usually different ranks and talents set upon by an enemy of equal or, traditionally, greater numbers, often tasked with a specific goal in an environment of hostiles. The number of games in this genre exceed description. Whilst the ARPG requires reflex and attentiveness of a pilot, the turn-based tactical RPG takes off where ARPGs left off. You have a handful of specialists. You must make masterful use of each man's talents, or you fail the objective at best or you all die at worst. Many offshoot of the human's rules framework of Dungeons and Dragons is a prime example. There are roles that are obvious to us, champion, shield bearer, scout, healer. But then there are easily 14 flavors of mystics for lack of better term. Each represent a yet unknown technological capability. And so every player knew the way to best counter them with the scarcest weapons and armor. Devised in the second millennium of Terran years, they had predicted all sorts of abilities from ECM warfare. The hyperspace interdiction, to concerted energy weapons, all represented by these ancient mystic classes. Before they had even colonized their first extraterrestrial body, humans had already mastered anti-energy weapon tactics, anti gravitics tactics, anti-plasma tactics. We still hear human soldiers today boast that they passed their reflex save when boasting about surviving a plasma barrage. Next, the second most worrying brand strategy. Let's not mince words. Any Terran who is adept at these games is at least as capable in logistics as our lowliest quartermaster general. These games sprawl continents, worlds, and frequently galaxies. Stellaris, now in its 70th release, now in the non-fiction section of the market, historical human errors, from Imperator Rome 50, to the Victoria Age, Victoria 70, to the first and second and third world wars, parts of Iron 56. These games, or Stellaris players call, practice, generally are a holistic empire simulator. Industries must be adjusted, manpower rearranged, resources exploited, bought or stolen, all to the end of supporting an empire. An empire, that need men, material, and sometimes cannot be too precise about where it comes from. Political and social strife that can be depicted down to just one janitor who's about to rebel, and the player can make the decision. Do I make that janitor's life better by raising the minimum wages? Nor do I think that the state has the resources to crush this inevitable proletarian rebellion? You and the choice to disappear his faction ruthlessly, should you choose so. In wartime, how much labor am I willing to force my POWs to do before my populace realizes I've abandoned the virtues we started the war with? Tensegron posts five screenshots from hearts of iron deployment screens, political screen, unit screen, and resources. These players have largely already solved the minutiae of running an expansive wartime empire in digital form. Woe betide us, who goad these humans into actually having one. Finally, real-time strategies. If ARPGs are to a truly skilled soldier, as tactical RPGs are to a sergeant, and grand strategy to a commander-in-chief, where the hell is real-time strategy land in the command structure? 10 Segron plays 20 minutes of competitor StarCraft. RTS Masters players average 400 actions per minute. They may command up to several hundred units at a time, just in the Starcraft 71 championships in Sol System, the victory clocked in at 600 APM at peak. No longer a game of science fiction genre, as humans have power armor, have met physically attuned races, as well as hive mind swarms. These players are essentially experts at battalion level command, They are masters of economy and attrition they know exactly how many marines they can sacrifice to an objective and still reap a net profit how many tanks how many aircraft they're not even doing math anymore they're just literally able to intuit the cost benefit before contact is made these wizards are able to see sheer military value in a half second and know when to engage, when to retreat, and how to preserve the whole battalion, even if every man in it knew that they were dead. We know there are devouring swarms in the black. We know there are more physically attuned races that can manifest otherworldly abilities. StarCraft uses these as their primary opponents. That experience is not nothing, but these masters can issue four to six hundred commands per minute. Give them enough live intel, and these battalions would run absolute circles around any command structure in the galaxy has ever seen. I have seen human gaming, and I am scared. Tensegron shakily having another sip of his tea. End of story. Story number two: Interviewing Human Shipbuilders, written by Thunder Salmon Forty Five. Welcome back everybody. Today our guest is a representative of General Spaceflight, the leading shipbuilder of the Human veneration spacecraft. Please welcome Charles Allen Dawson. Thank you. A uh, pleasure to be here. Mr. Dawson, it was well known that humans borrowed their early spaceflight design from, from several other space species before settling on a human hallmark, so to speak. But you specifically have had a special hand in making one unique adaptation to human spacecraft that really allowed humans to excel. Care to enlighten our listeners? Ah, thanks again. I am humbled that everyone likes to attribute the spatial atmosphere system to me. But there was a whole team of us involved in its development well, we certainly would like to express our appreciation to your team as well. Now, please, tell us a bit more about the spatial atmosphere system. What is it, and how does it work? Uh, of course, uh, well, um, I guess I'll go into a short history, if you don't mind. It'll put the entire system into a better perspective. Please go ahead. My listeners are always receptive to human histories and human stories. Humans, as you know, evolved as a predator on Earth some 100 to 200,000 cycles ago. We were not a clear apex predator species. We were preyed upon just as often as we preyed upon others. We developed relatively keen senses for Earth creatures that helped us both hunt prey and avoid becoming prey for others. Our senses became keen enough that even during sleep, our daily unconscious resting period, that any one of our senses could awaken us immediately to alert us of danger. Oh my, it sounds exhausting having all your senses working all the time like that. Your daily sleep sounds like a necessity to try and recoup some of the energy it must take. (laughs) Yes, uh, kind of. All creatures and even most plants on Earth need a rest period, though. Anyways... As I was saying, our senses are constantly keeping us aware of our surroundings, both consciously and unconsciously. What we didn't realize when we became an interplanetary species was how quiet and non-sensory most spacecraft are. Most early spacer humans kept music or air circulator systems running constantly to deal with the lack of regular sensory inputs. Really? Are you suggesting humans found other species' crafts were too quiet? Yes, exactly. We found that humans need sounds or vibrations or other stimuli constantly to keep ourselves at peak alertness and performance. The first non-human crafts that we adopted for us were small, sleek cruisers. Obviously, our species were similar enough in size and shape that almost no modifications were needed. The only problem was that if humans didn't have something to distract us from how silent those ships were, we had uh, mental problems. Please enlighten us. What were these early issues? Believe it or not, hallucinations. Our subconscious brains made up sounds, and have made a good deal of our early pilots very superstitious that misclean ships were haunted. The only sounds you might naturally hear on a well-tuned misclean ship would be the capacitors charging during the high-energy maneuvers. Even that sound is only heard by a small percentage of humans anyway. So obviously, we needed something to meet the sensory needs of a human in space. And that was the special atmospheric system? You got it. The SAS system is tied directly to the ship's interior monitoring system and exterior sensor arrays. It makes the fully digital system on a spacecraft sound and feel like a mechanical system. It literally fools the pilot into receiving almost all information subconsciously. Subconsciously? How is that possible? Well, for example, we programmed the ships to play a deep droning sound permanently to indicate that the ship is traveling and the engine is operating. The faster the ship is traveling, the more intense the droning will be. It is very similar to old-style cars, uh, vehicles, that we had on Earth. They used combustion engines and were very loud when opened in high-energy operations. Even later energy-driven cars were still noisy because of Earth's atmosphere. Humans just got used to it and eventually needed it in space, too. That is incredibly interesting, Mr. Dawson, but there is more to the SAS, isn't there? For example, you mentioned it also utilizes the ship's exterior sensor arrays. Yes, of course. There is an old saying, in space no one can hear you scream. That was an old movie tagline, but rang true on many levels. Space was too quiet for humans. How early games and simulations all made space more dramatic by assuming the sounds of other ships around you. Or space explosions during war actually booming. Or even enemy laser fire making a pew pew sounds. We simply made sure that anything happening outside the ship made a sound of some kind for the humans to hear. The sounds are projected to the human crew in a full surround system so we can monitor actions without seeing their physical locations. And somehow this made humans adapt easier to space? Absolutely! Since making our ships act high-tech but sound low-tech, our crews were able to consistently become some of the highest-ranked pilots amongst known spaces species. Oddly enough, one more trick we used to use was to very lightly disable our inertial dampeners just a fraction of a percent, so we could feel the ship's acceleration, or feel the gravity fluctuations, during turns and maneuvers. All of this was incorporated into the SAS. Humans apparently work better when overwhelmed with sensory stimulus. (laughs) I see. There you have it, listeners. Humans can attribute their success as a space species to keeping their planet-side distractions as part of their normal space routines. Once again, I would like to thank Mr. Charles Allen Dawson for sharing with us a small snippet of human design in history. We look forward to hopefully having you on again. And thank you, dear listener. Until next time, this is Miss Clean Romep on Outpost Podcast Radio. End of story. Stagnant, written by Doc one You know, Alf, it's funny, trying to wipe us out in an attempt to finish what you started eons ago, before we fled to another world as a means for survival, when our ancestors heard the marching of your forces coming. By the way, thank you for ensuring there were records of our history after we arrived onto the plains of Africa those many eons ago. We sadly couldn't afford to bring our records with us, So, it was rather nice knowing that you saved them, and even after going through it, along with comparing them to our own records, we cannot help but laugh. Oh, why, you ask, because you elves still don't fucking understand us. You see, you elves can live for millennia. You elves don't have to worry about the sand in your hourglasses reaching the bottom as badly as we do. As such, you can take as much time as you like with developing your society, technology, and beliefs. But us humans, we didn't have such luck. We had short lives, typically only living for a hundred years. As such, we had to advance our society much more rapidly. After all, if we wanted to see our achievements completed in our lifetime, we had to build fast and build big. We had to use our short lifetimes wisely, Before going into the void, it taught us to live our lives to the maximum. But when we started to catch up to you elves, in the mere eighth of the time it took your people to advance technologically, you grew scared. For the first time, your superiority was at risk. So, what did you do? You attacked us you wanted to wipe us out to ensure the elves would be the dominant culture society and technologically based civilization on our world on your world that's why the dwarves orcs and goblins don't dare advance further than you because they still remember what you did to us the only species that didn't have to fear you were the halflings but they're basically just small hippies so they wouldn't really have any problems with them and in all the eons since we ran away to survive, in all those eons you had to yourselves, did you advance in the slightest? No. Believing that now the threat of an equal to your own was gone, you went right back to where you started while also keeping the others in line. We ever word for such a civilization as yours? Stagnant. You shouldn't have let yourselves become stagnant. Do you know what we did after we established ourselves as the apex on Mother Terra? We looked up. We saw all the stars in the night sky and went, we must go there. So we built a primitive, chemically propelled rocket and sent an artificial object into space. Then we put a man into the stars and landed more on the moon in just a few short years. But even that wasn't enough for us. We saw more places to go beyond the horizon and built more and more advanced spacecraft to reach them. Eventually, we discovered others that roamed the stars. Some were friendly enough, others, and our drums would all beat again and again until the threats were wiped out. Sometimes we lost, sometimes we won, but through all the challenges thrown at us, we learned and advanced. Do you know why this is? Because we always saw room to improve. We weren't content with just having things one way. If we saw that something could be improved upon, we improved it. If we saw something that could be built in another easier way, we switched to that method. When we reached the stage where dark matter, vacuum dark matter was being used as the base of most, if not all, of our technology, we were scared. You see, we didn't know what came after harnessing dark matter. We didn't know if there was something that came after it. We feared that we'd be entering an era of stagnation. That was until someone looked into a mirror and found one more thing to improve and upgrade. Homo sapiens evolved into a new stage over 500 years ago. Now we are Homo superior. We are the first and currently only known techno-organic life form in the galaxy. And when we rediscovered the portal structure that allowed us to come to Mother Terra in Africa when we fled, we, of course, figured out how to turn it back on. Our curiosity of the unknown practically demanded that we open it again. What we were expecting when we crossed was to discover new civilizations to learn from and cooperate with. What we were not expecting was to be shot at with extremely primitive bows and arrows. When we learned why, attacked us, we concluded the only way to ensure your survival was to remove your empire from its status as the dominant power and force you all to wake the feck up to reality. That's why our armies marched in your territory, batting aside your pathetic armies, armed with spears, swords, bows, and arrows, while ours are armed with particle, plasma, projectile, ground support, tanks, and a whole host of weapon types that we don't feel like listing. So, Prince Morvan Silver Silvercrown of the Elven High Kingdom, do you wish to see your pathetic, stagnant empire fall to the ground in the next 50 minutes? Or would you like to contact dear old dad now and beg him to stop before we show you what it's like to be on the receiving end of a superior power hellbent on putting you in your rightful place beneath your betters? Better decide quickly because the sand in your people's hourglass is rapidly hitting bottom. End of story. Story number two. Human tradesmen, written by Adjutant Stormy. As people of Terra filtered out into the galaxy with their discovery of FTL, their world felt insufficient in opportunity for many of their overpopulated arcologies. And so, the human diaspora, began. Today, 20 human years on, you can find human longshoremen, teamsters, plumbers, and pipefitters, and electricians mixed into every starport staff in half the galaxy. These human specialists are valuable, able to handle lift what might require your race to heavy machinery, able to hold deadly poisons without a rebreather, able to retool the coolant system on a live ship reactor. You can see why we keep them on. There's only one little problem. They call it a union, not as a spousal union, which led to our initial confusion, but as an association including every human or otherwise, it would turn out tradesmen of a type, and they will shut you down if you piss them off. Piss off a human union, and be prepared to lose hundreds of thousands of credits per day. The benefits have been attractive enough to lure the other menial species to join. In 2406 human standard year, the Gnesh Typhon War broke out. Imagine velociraptors fighting red pandas. The adorable Typhon was immediately in the back foot. Stations to be used as FOBs were hard to find on both sides. Take to the Longshoremen's Union of Local 5439 2 on the non aligned Takata Station. A dispute over hazard pay due to the ongoing shipments of explosives through Takata during the Nash Typhon War calls the Union to simply put down their equipment and wait. And wait. No shipments moved, no arms transported. They had demands. In the end, after four weeks of halted armament shipments and a detrimental reversal in the war, the liaison officers of the Takata station were told by Typhon command to pay the men whatever the hell they need to give us our damned munitions. The human steward, as he called himself, accepted the new agreement. I'll need this in writing, he said. In a separate incident on a niche captured Typhon fueling station, F.A. Seven One Zero Two, their new Neshi overlords were a bit battered but victorious. They had three battle cruisers that limped into port, barely maintaining reactor containment. The mixed human-Typhon staff, not keen on materially aiding these belligerent dickheads, requested work orders in triplicate. To be fair, the Neshi were paying them instead of enslaving them, but it didn't mean that they had to be polite. Once again, one of the human stewards found a mistake. The repiping of a reactor course with a signed digitally certified work order was not to spec. As ordered, these ships would go critical within a week. Incorrect heat-tolerant material, incorrect emergency venting valves, you name it. The Neshi ordered the whole wrong part, but the Neshi were the warriors, not the engineers. So the humans introduced a new concept to the Typhon compatriots. Work to rule. No, don't labor to dominance. Work to the rule. Everyone knew these ships were going out faulty. But I'm just following the work order boss is pretty phenomenal defense. Some of the Typhon felt guilty until the human steward told them, it's not your ship and it's not your money. And they've been kicking our teeth in for weeks. In the end, the humans ended up joining Typhon in the war. But only to fish their people out of the neshy backwaters, and it was over in a matter of months. The Nesh started the war with a fleet of pirates and battle cruisers, fierce and numerous, and ended the war by humiliating situations like running out of fuel because the dock workers uh, forgot to top them up. Shield generator failures, not my department, boss. It doesn't have pipes. Equipment malfunction and critical reactor events from dubiously enthusiastic maintenance. Human tradesmen had won the war by being very, very selectively lazy. Pro-Union sentiments rose markably throughout human and Typhon space after the ceasefire. End of story. Final Fight of the Terran Ravens, written by Tonberry Fay. No Terran battleship has ever fallen to the foe. They've been wounded, sometimes so severely as to warrant decommissioning. But not one has ever been abandoned captured, or lost in the Void. Deuce Arai, God of Wrath, was the first true battleship. She had haunted the dreams of the Quaviar voidsman for over sixty years. Nessar Vessels had surrendered at the mere sight of her rather than risk the fury of her guns. An entire squadron of heavy cruisers was tasked solely with hunting her down. I ask you, how could the Deuce Arai ignore such a challenge to her might? The fleet's anchorage was Tynos three. A plan was made to bait them out, to send a Q-ship along the Spinewood front and bring the fleet to battle. Then the real Dusarai would make an extremely dangerous in-system jump to the gas giant and hit the anchorage. The plan should have worked. The hunting pack was far out of position and the Terrans made their jump flawlessly. Yet, rather than an empty station, Ducerai found four Quavilar battleships and their escorts present for repair and resupply. The captain of the Ducerai ordered an immediate withdrawal. She loosed a single spiteful volley with every gun and torpedo to wound the station and cripple the dry docked battleships as she broke off and burned hard for safety. Brigades and cruisers hounded her all the way out. On the bridge, Captain Merlin and his staff performed the cold calculations of battle. They could outrun the enemy battleships, but not the smaller craft. They could outfight any of those ships three to one, but there were six vessels bearing down. Every option was considered, and every hypothetical ending was the same way. Deucerai would not make it. If they ran, they'd be run down. If they stood and fought, they would die. Surrender was the only way to spare her 4,000 crew from death. Surrender is not an option, Wing Commander Lee's insisted. Not one of our battleships has been claimed, and I'll be damned if it's ours that's the first to fall. Then, what do you suggest? the captain asked. Lee glanced at the displays around the chamber, taking in the tactical data evolving the situation. Scramble Terra's ravens, he said. It would not be enough. Not enough, Lee echoed. Our bombers have enough firepower to blow four cruisers to hell. Between our payloads and the ship's main guns, we would win this. The captain shook his head. Not with the battleships running us down. If we turn and fight, we'd never outrun them. And they must have made us by now. They'll hammer us to dust the moment our main guns get into range. I don't see the issue, sir. The issue, Commander, is we have to maintain full burn for the jump point. Your bombers will not make it back." Lee's face hardened. Like I said, I don't see an issue. A look of shock came across the captain's face no he whispered it's the only choice sir sacrifice the wing to save the ship condemn 300 men and women to die here so the rest can live no i refuse Lee sighed. it's called triage sir it's called murder commander there is a world of difference between ordering men into battle knowing they might die and knowing they will die i refuse to cross that line I would rather the ship be dragged back to the Quavi homeworld as a prize than give an order, that callous. Sir? The wing is grounded. That's an order. Wing Commander Lee snapped a salute. Yes, sir. Permission to leave the bridge, sir? No! You'll do something damn stupid. You can stay here. That's also an order. The captain turned back to the display. He heard Lee step back from the main console. Then consider this a mutiny, sir. And he marched for the latch. Commander! Captain Merlin turned sharply, but Lee did not pause. One of the marines went to stop the officer, but Merlin raised his hand. Let him go. Lee summoned his wing as he headed for the bay. Most of the pilots were already there, fully suited and chomping at the bit to scramble. They jumped to their feet and snapped salutes as the commanding officer drew near. At ease, Lee called. I've come straight from the bridge. Listen up, all of you, deck crews included. I want to make sure everyone present knows exactly what has transpired. The bustling deck fell silent. Pilots, mechanics, flight control officers, and all other assembled servicemen and servicewomen gave Commander Lee their full attention. As you must know by now, we are running for the jump point with the fleet hot on our heels. The captain believes surrender is our only option as we are unlikely to make it to the jump with so many hostiles bearing down upon us. A murmur ran through the pilots, low and full of fury. Lee smiled at that. The only hope Juice ARI has to escape is if we, the 117th Terran Air Wing, can cripple or destroy four enemy cruisers. The remaining two frigates won't stand against a battleship's guns, and that'll give us enough time we need to get out and jump clear. However, that would be a suicide mission, and the captain refuses to order you to die so that he might live. Let me say again, he added, shouting at full volume, the entire air wing has been ordered to remain on board any ship scrambling would be considered a mutineer. The rage burning off his pilots was palpable. he savored it as he turned on his heel and marched towards the deck officer, a smartly dressed woman in her mid-thirties. Is my ship prepped for launch? The entire wing is ready to go, sir, she replied. I intend to launch and take fight to the enemy. Do you plan to stop me? The woman glanced about, looking quite puzzled. Then she said aloud, Someone informed the bridge that we have had a malfunction in the launch catapult. Wing Commander's Lee's craft is being flung into space. Do you have any other faulty catapults? Squadron Commander O'Connell asked, appearing at Lee's shoulder. I have a feeling they're all faulty, sir, the deck officer replied. Lee turned to his wingmates. They were all stood up and blood hungry. This is a one-way trip, he said coldly. I know you. I know all of you. Every man and woman here have loved ones, parents, siblings, spouses, children. You'll never see them again if you do this. We're wasting precious time, sir, O'Connell replied in a tone that made it clear. The matter was settled. Lee mounted up. The whole wing did. Fighter escorts thundered out of the tubes first, spat out of the ship's underside. The deck crew cleared the hangar as the port and starboard doors of the fly-through hangar slid open. And one by one, the launch catapults of the bombers discharged to hurl their craft out of bone-crushing speeds. They banked around and split into four raiding parties, each burning hard for one of the cruisers. Lee's force took the furthest target. It would be the hardest to reach, for the more time they spent in the black, the more likely they were to be shot down. Behind and to his right, the tactical officer relayed critical information, warning of inbound interceptors advising course corrections and updating the progress of the wing. O'Connell and his squadron were first into the fray, gunning point-blank towards a cruiser and firing at the very last moment. Three blinding flashes lit up in the void, and the tactical officer relayed confirmation. The Quavilar cruiser had been broken in half by his hits. Escort squadron, what is your status? he asked, and his screen lit up with contacts. This is Pinion Six, we're giving them hell, Commander. Pinion lead has gone dark. We've burned about half the fuel and ammo, but we're going nowhere. They'll break before we do. Point defence turrets began to roar as Lee and his ships closed in on their prey. The ship on his left wing took a direct hit and came apart in a brief fiery blast. Another salvo ripped two more bombers to shreds. Pinion squadron, we're getting mauled here. Can you spare anyone to suppress these turrets? We're on it, sir. It was the last he'd ever hear of Pinion Six or anyone from Pinion Squadron. The bomber's turret gunner called out contacts as enemy fighters came into range. But the cruiser's guns were silent. Begin attack run, all ships fire at will. Be ready to, he choked. The air suddenly torn from his lungs. There was a painful ringing in his ears and somewhere an alarm was blaring. He tried to breathe and a liquid agony surged through his body. Looking down, Lee saw a jagged chunk of canopy sticking through his chest. He saw the gaping wound in his cockpit, and, through the fog of pain and shock, connected the two. He turned slowly, glancing towards his tactical officer. A headless body sat in the chair, with a smoking hole in the bulkhead behind him. The bomber shook violently. Lee slammed his eyes shut as the cruiser head was hit by multiple warheads. He punched up the tactical display on his secondary console. Two cruisers were dead. A third had taken massive engine damage and fallen out of formation. All surviving members of the Terror's Ravens were swarming the Foth. Somehow, Lee pulled his craft around and burned hard towards the final mark. It was getting hard to focus. It took a lifetime to punch up the long-range scanner so that he could survey the wider battle. One of the frigates was coming apart. Her reactor breached, but the last cruiser was still on Deuce Arise's tail and inflicting heavy damage. He squeezed the trigger and let the torpedo go from the extreme range. It was getting hard to stay awake. He fought to make his eyes focus on another screen. The bombers, having sent their payloads, were resorting to kamikaze attacks against the engines. Weapon systems, sensor pylons, anything. They might halt the cruiser. Then came the flash. Something hit the cruiser hard enough to rip her nose clean off. Lee hoped that it was his torpedo. Now unsupported, the final frigate chose to break off its hunt. The Terrans let it go. Space around the deucerai pulsed. To the naked eye, the ship appeared to be sucked through a hole the size of a pinhead. She was gone, far from the reach of the Kovalear. Lee looked at his command screen. All icons were red. No fight, no bomb, no escape pods. He smiled despite the grim news. No, Terran battleship has ever... He was too tired to finish the burst. Lee let his eyes slide shut and joined the rest of End of story. Refugees, written by Shane Watson. Geordie held open the door. Welcome to the cat shelter. Knock it off, Penn said. I hear anyone, including you, refer to the Australians as cats again. They'll be relegated to the loading dock. Geordie led Penn to her new office. What about the Australians that refer to themselves as cats, or as, a uh, Nekomimi? What are you talking about? When they first got here, an Australian found an old manga somewhere. They thought it was some prolific thing that we would have drawings of them. Pen stopped in front of her desk and rubbed her temples. What have I gotten myself into? I'm supposed to be overseeing humanitarian aid for alien refugees, not creating superstitions or religions. I don't think they're getting religious about it. They already have a belief that future events will show themselves to artists, whether they know it or not. Good! I wouldn't want them to think they were gods or prophets or saints or something. She took off her overcoat and tossed it across the empty desk. Um, Geordie looked uneasy. I don't think we need to worry on that front. Why, they got here and the first thing they see is, uh, wait a minute. What kind of manga was it? Geordie looked away. Uh, well, um... Penn Grant. Great! We offer refugees assistance and the first thing they see gives them reason to believe that we have perverted motives for doing so. I wouldn't say they think we're perverted, but they think that we are strange and they are, um, uh, curious? About what? Uh, don't be alarmed if one of them asks to see your body. They what? They find it odd that we wear clothes regardless of the temperatures. They only wear clothes when they need protection of some sort. Warm clothes when it's cold, camouflage or armor when they fight and so on. Have you? Hey, give me a break here. None of us has done anything of the sort. These people are traumatized and we're here to help. Sorry. Uh, that's my own bias leaking through. Penn took a deep breath, then looked Geordie straight in the eye. I apologize for equating young men with sexual irresponsibility. Apology accepted. And I apologize for immediately thinking that you were a ball-breaker. It's awful to say, but I should be honest with you. That's what I thought you were when you first responded to my welcome. By the way, uh, quite a few of the Australian refer to the ORC as a cat sanctuary. Ugh. Now that we have both embarrassed ourselves, why don't we show me the facility and introduce me to some of the refugees? I especially want to meet those with infants and young children to see what other resources we might need for them. Through here, Geordie led her through the door that opened to his bridge. I'll get your badge to you in a bit. Got behind today's schedule sending the supply of truck off to San Diego. Geordie hadn't exaggerated. There were a few Australians wearing a light blanket wrapped around them. A couple were wearing trousers with a hole cut out for their tail, and not much else in the way of clothing, apart from what the humans wore. They were shorter than the average human and looked finer of muscle, yet... The way some of the young ones jumped when she got the impression was stronger than they looked. She had to admit to herself that they were a near-perfect match for Nekomimi. They had a semi-feline face, large triangular ears, and twitched and turned, a long tail they used for balance, and a covering of fine valise hair in the colours ranging from pale to deep blue, matching the skin colour beneath. Eye colour ranges from pale gold to deep green. The females had visible memories, two on the top, Two smaller below them, and a pair of supernumerary nipples below that. The males, like Earth-based mammals, had the same number of nipples, without any memories. Penn felt uncomfortable. She knew they were aliens, yet something in her mind was on the verge of panic. I know that look, Geordie said. Uncanny valley, huh? You get used to it. Australian woman walked up to them, waving. Who, who's this? Aratarila, he said, rolling his R's, but she goes by Rita. Araterila, Pen said. It's a pleasure to meet you. I am Penelope Watkins. You can just call me Pen. Good meeting, Pen. Please call me Rita. Geordie said something to Rita in her own language and then she laughed. Close. Requat, being early morning, now being Olaliat, late morning. Who's teaching us their language? Pen asked Geordie. I teach humans, Rita answered. Norman teaching Australian Englishes. She struggled with the pronunciation of the R in Norman and with a big NG sound in English. Her pronunciation of the word Australian was difficult for Pen to wrap her tongue around, but she'd heard Geordie doing it, so she knew that it was possible. I would very much like to meet mothers and families with small children and infants. It is important that we get supplies they need. Rita called out to what sounded like a chirp, and a young Australian child ran up to her side and hid behind her leg. Standing only as tall as her knees, this being my, uh, parap. Son, Geordie offered. Yes, son, Peter. Say hi. He peeked her head around her leg. Hi, Miss, uh, hi, Geordie. C- can I go play now? Rita knelt to his level and whispered in his ear. He bounded off to play with the other children. She stood and faced the humans again. Sorry, he's being shy. That's fine. He has no accent. You said his name is Peter. Is that his name here? Does he have Australian name as well? Geordie cleared his throat. Peter was born here. Rita was one of the first refugees. He's only six months old. They mature physically a lot faster than we do. Not in size, but in coordination and the ability to walk, run, jump, and so on. At least in the first years. From what I understand, they mature on par with us after that. The one year old Australian is equivalent to a five year old human in terms of physical development. Mental development is more equivalent, but Peter is mm, exceptional. Peter's saying English is and Australian before Peter eyes open. I apparently have a lot to learn about the Australian, Penn said. If it's okay with both of you, I'd like to spend the day with you. Rita, get a feel for what you works and what doesn't. That's fine with me, Geordie said. Rita, feel free to show Penn around, and don't be afraid to complain about anything you don't like. He turned to Penn. I'll get your key card ready and forward the medical info we have on Australians to your comm. Thanks, Geordie. Yes, thank you. Rita linked her arm with Pen's. Walking with me. Of course. Penn noticed how warm and soft Rita's arm was, and how steady were the muscles beneath whenever she shifted. As Rita led her to the area where the children played, Penn asked. Are their toys from your world that we don't have? We making toys, Rita said, pointing to a pile of feathers, beds, sticks, and strings. The children were playing with a broad array of different sorts of toys, made from the same four components. Some flew their spaceships, others baby-talked or scolded dolls, others played a game that reminded Penn of a cross between hacky sack and Badminton. Is that what you have always done? Yes, we making own toys, making places, a, uh, factor Factory? Factory, making ships and armor and, uh, and Lara, she said, making brand new dismissive motion. Sorry, not knowing the Englishes. Uh, I I think I understand, Penscom chimed as she checked the message. There was a long one, but she skimmed it and got broad points. Rita, she asked, have you had any fresh fruit since you've been here? What about vegetables? Sorry, uh, not knowing those Englishes. Pen opened up an image browser on fruits and vegetables. She showed Rita as she scrolled through them. Have you seen any of these since you've been here? They being foods? Yes. We eating this foods? she said, lifting an empty emergency ration pack from the trash. Okay, that's the first thing I'm fixing. She leaned in close to Rita and whispered in a conspiratorial tone. Do the children like sweet things? Yes. I'll try and have a surprise for them in the morning. Early morning. What was it? Raquat? Yes. Penn sent a message from a com from Penelope Watkins, director of Oceanside Refugee Center, to San Diego Refugee Coordination Warehouse. Add to required provisions in amounts to match ORC population. Daily, fresh, in-seasoned fruits and vegetables, eggs, honey, bread, butter. Weekly, extra strawberries, extra butter, maple syrup, blueberry syrup, waffle mix and base ingredients for waffles. Extra requisitions. One time 12 double waffle irons, Lego classic 1000 pieces or more, any item from SDRCW, have driver, com, or director for purchase on the economy at director's expense. End of story. I'd quickly like to thank the T5 peeps. Bitmorey, Terran on Air, Cold War Boomer Waffen, Severin Cerberus, Red Panda 121, Leslie 517, Bushmaster 177, Caspar Arnholz, Cam Maxwell, Nightjok, Dragzoon WRE, Lord Azricul, and Arcadian. Thank you.